Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is someone whose podcast a friend sent me a few months ago, and after listening to the first episode, I immediately contacted the host to have her on the show. Nikki Boyer is the host of Dying for Sex, and I can't wait to share her story with you. Welcome, Nikki. Hi. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for that beautiful intro. Thank you for doing this. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. My name is Nikki Boyer, and I started off as sort of an actress, host at a very young age, moved to LA in my 20s, and I do producing and writing and acting, basically anything that pays me in this business, storytelling, I will do. And I also do music. So my journey to getting to Los Angeles was literally jumping in a car at the age of 20 and saying, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, but I'm just going to Los Angeles. And here I am, you know, 20 five years later. Oh my God, it's been 25 years. <laughs> oh. And um, I've just been working in the business, doing television, doing theater, um, hosting TV shows is usually how I've made my living. And so when the podcasting world sort of had this resurgence, which I didn't even really realize it was happening, I somehow landed serendipitously, which I'll tell you about later, but how I ended up in the podcasting world was really because of this podcast, Dying for Sex. Um, so I live in Los Angeles with my boyfriend and his two children. So I'm a stepmom and my giant St. Bernard dog. And um, I have a recording studio where I'm sort of sitting and doing this in my tiny little closet with shoes and clothing <laughs> around me and a tiny little lamp. So I look, I look like a child that's hiding from their parents to read at night. That's what I look like right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And also shout out to your boyfriend for helping us with our lovely technical difficulties today. <laughs> Yay for him. Harper, you said, should we just start the computer over? And Tommy said, That's what I think. And I'm like rolling my <laughs> eyes. And then we started our computer over and now everything works. <laughs> oh my God. Technology. I right? wish I had an engineer in the house, let me tell you. I know, lucky me. So a friend of mine texted me back in, was it February when you launched? Yeah, it was like right around Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah. So when you launched, my friend sent me a text and was like, you must listen to this show. I was like, okay, fine. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm happy to, you know, have new ones. I listened to this one episode and just completely freaked out over the creativity and the concept of this show and finding that in 2020, there's not a lot of new content. There's a lot of repurposing. And this just felt really, really unique. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. I would love for you to start by sharing a little bit about what Dying for Sex is for the listeners who haven't listened to the podcast yet, and a little bit about your friend Molly. Yeah, thank you. So my friend Molly was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer back in 2000. Oh my gosh, the timeline. Sometimes I'm like, what year are we in? I don't even know what day it is. So Molly was diagnosed, you know, I'm just going to say quite a while ago. Um, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and it eventually was 
diagnosed as metastatic, which there is no cure for. And when she got that news, uh, she decided to do something really kind of unprecedented. She decided to leave her marriage, her relationship of 15 years, move out of her home and move into an apartment very close to mine and sort of go on a sexual journey of having experiences that she had never gotten to have. And so dying for sex is about sex and it is about death, but it's the story I think of friendship and love and sort of handling adversity and how to get over some childhood issues. And And I think it's way more than what's just in the title. I think a lot of people hear dying for sex in the first three episodes. Let me tell you, they're all about sex and they're really fun because mm-hmm. Molly, when she got diagnosed, she was balancing going to chemo and going to treatments and you know going to the hospital all the time. But she was also balancing her life on Tinder and Bumble and every dating app she could get herself on. And she was dating and having sex like a mad woman. So figuring out, you know, how to navigate cancer, she was also navigating her sexual life, which usually don't go hand in hand. So I found it to be so interesting. I said to her one day, I mean, like Harper, I picked her up for, I think it was lunch, like an early lunch around 1130. And she looked really cute when she got in the car. And I was like, where are you going? I didn't know we were dressing up for lunch. And she's like, oh, I've already been on two dates this morning. And I was like, what? So her life was just so adventurous and so interesting that I stopped the car. I remember sitting at a red light and I said, Molly, there's something here. Your life is so interesting. I think there's a show here, like a TV show or something. We need to tell these stories because I don't know anyone that's going through what you're going through and also having a sexual awakening. And she's like, really? So that's kind of where dying for sex came from. And the title just popped into my head. So that's kind of how it started. Would you call her a interesting and unique character or adventurous character prior to all of this? Oh, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I'd say adventurous, but I would say unique and quirky and different and had a really unique perspective on the world and was really just a really smart, interesting person and kind of could always look at things from a completely opposite. She'd flip things upside down and somehow make sense of them. So I loved how her brain worked. I loved how she would take shitty situations and turn them into something really interesting. So she was just a a really interesting person. Um, Sexually, not very adventurous. She was in a marriage that wasn't fulfilling her sexually. And so I didn't really think of her as a sexually adventurous person. She was a very sexy person. And I felt like a very sexual person and craved that. But not until this diagnosis happened did that part of her really blossom. So I think she had always wanted that, but I think the cancer in a weird way gave her permission to say, F it. Like, I don't give a crap about what anybody thinks. I want to do what I want to do. I love that mentality so much. It's just so crazy that sometimes it takes, you know, something so massive in our lives to make that kind of change. It's like you hit rock bottom and you're like, the only way out is up. Mm -hmm. And it's figuring out what it is that you haven't done that you want to do. It's a bucket list kind of thing. What was your reaction when Molly first told you that she was diagnosed with terminal cancer? Well, the interesting thing is it fits in totally with your podcast and with your journey is this sort of invisible illness, right? Like Molly was diagnosed with cancer, had her double mastectomy, went through all the treatment, lost her hair, but she did all of that very privately for many years, four years, I believe, um, while she was married to her husband. 
I knew about it. Close family knew about it, but nobody else knew about it. So she decided to hide her illness because she did not want to be viewed as a quote unquote cancer patient. She did not want that to be how she showed up in the world. So she was very private about her cancer and didn't tell many people about it. And it was an odd thing to balance as her best friend because I was going through my own grief and sadness about her having it, but having to keep that sort of a secret within my close knit group of people that I shared it with privately. Like, oh my gosh, Molly has cancer to my mom. I'm like, mom, Molly has cancer. I can't tell anybody, but I have to tell you because I I can't carry this around all by myself. So she was very private about it. But but then when she was diagnosed as terminal, when she got that phone call where the doctor said it's back, it's in your bones, it's in your liver, it's in your lungs, it's in your brain, it's everywhere. Even though I had dealt so much with cancer in my life because my father passed away from it, my brother struggled with it, there was a weird feeling like I always thought Molly was somehow going to be okay. I just, I don't know. I just felt like somehow she was going to find a way through it. She would think her way through it, whether it's getting new doctors or treatments that are, you know, unique and different. For some reason, even though she used the word terminal with me, I still felt like I had her for a longer amount of time. I don't know. It's that sort of magical thinking that we talk about in the podcast. For some reason with her, I thought she was invincible. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's like, obviously you don't want anyone to pass. And I'm sure part of it was that she was so positive. She had such an amazing outlook on everything. I mean, every time I listened to the podcast, even on days where you could tell that she was weaker and things weren't going as great, there was still this attitude that was just so invincible. I know, right? I loved that about her. That was my favorite quality. Yes, there were moments that she was on the bathroom floor and sick and couldn't eat. I mean, there were dark, dark moments. But when she got her energy up and when she was feeling good, she was feeling amazing, change the world good, you know, like wanted to just really experience life. And if you really listen to the podcast around episode four, and it's a six episode series, um, and there's some little bonus episodes as well, but the full story like really starts, you start to really peel back the onion of Molly, I think in episode four, where you understand why the sex is important and what she's getting out of the sex. And sometimes it's amazing. And sometimes it's not so amazing, but I think what kept her so positive is that she really felt like she was getting to know a part of herself that was vital to her self-exploration. I don't know if that sounds airy-fairy, but like she was really getting to heal some old wounds and discover some things about herself that really made her feel alive. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing here is that the show is about sex, but it's also about identity. And Her identity shifted in being a cancer patient, but she also became this person that was open and willing to try totally new things. How do you feel that she navigated that time and that identity shift? That's a great question. I feel like in the moment, I don't know if I was as conscientious of what she was doing, but now that I've had time after her passing, you know, it's been almost a year and a few months since her passing and really listening back to the podcast and thinking back on her life. I think she really handled it in the perfect way for her, right? Like it was messy. It was uncomfortable. It was weird, but it was also empowering and beautiful and it ignited growth for her. I think it was exactly where she needed to be. And there were people that had judgment about what she was doing and how she was using sex sort of to be the antithesis to death. 
But if you really listen to Molly and how she describes it, for her, it was the needle that needed to be thread. Threaded? Thread? I Sometimes my grammar's really bad. Sorry. So it's the needle that needed to be threaded? I don't know. Let's just say that's what it is. <laughs> it's the needle that needed to be threaded. And I really hope you keep this in the podcast so I can sound like a total buffoon. Because these are my favorite moments when I sound like an idiot. Um, but I really think that's what she needed to do is perfectly Molly. And it was perfectly, it was complicated. It was contradictory. Like we're all really complicated people. And I think that's what I love so much about her is that she was complicated and messy and was willing to be 100% okay with that. And also to share it with the world. So how did you guys decide what you shared, what you didn't share, what you recorded, what you maybe cut? How were those decisions made? Well, it started when we first started recording the podcast we paired up with this production company of some friends of mine and they said, let's just get something on, on tape. Like, let's just sit down and record. So Molly and I produced like 10 episodes of us talking about all of her sexual escapades. So when we started this, we really thought this was going to go on and on for a couple of years. Like we would just keep making these podcasts and it's so weird to look back and think of it. Like I really thought, even though I had all the information, I really thought we were going to have more years together So when she got into the hospital and didn't return to the normal world and ended up staying in the hospital, I realized that the recordings that we had done needed an ending. Like we needed to sort of address what was going on with her. So we recorded in her hospital room. We recorded while she was in hospice. And we recorded, I want to say it's like nine days actually before she ended up passing away. So I don't think if I was fully aware of what the story was that I was telling, but I just knew I needed to record with her. So when I brought these episodes, sort of raw, sort of finished kind of episodes, when I brought them to Wondery, who's my partner and helped me produce the podcast, my producers there wanted to know so much more. So that's when we dove into Molly's book, into talking to Molly's mom, into her family interviews, into interviews with some of the guys that she had dated. So what's different is... When we were recording together, it was sort of this kind of one-dimensional story, right? Two friends sharing sexual stories and talking about it under the umbrella of cancer and a cancer diagnosis and being terminal. But what we came up with were these beautiful six episodes of really painting a portrait of a part of Molly's life. And I think being able to share that with the world was way more than Molly ever anticipated, but it really was important to her. It was part of her dream to share her story and to really be seen and heard, I think for the first time in her life. But oddly enough, it was through her death that she got that. Wow. What an homage to her. Thank you. I feel like it's a gift. I don't know to walk to the end of someone's life with them. And what a beautiful gift that I get to then share this with everyone and sit and talk to you about Molly. Like I'm looking at a picture of her right now and like, I wish she was here and I wish she could be telling you the story of her. But in a weird way, I feel like this was very oddly meant to be. I don't know. I don't know if that sounds morbid or weird. It's not meant to sound that way. But when she was dying, she's like, I hope this is a gift for you. I hope that somehow my death makes me emotional when I think about it. Somehow I hope my death can give you a more enhanced life. And I didn't know what she meant at that time, but now here I am still continuing this journey with her. And I feel like she's with me, but it has enhanced my life immensely. And I think she knew she was leaving me something bigger than herself and bigger than me. So yeah, 
it's pretty special. Really powerful. I mean, I just think, I think about people who, you know, have the last voicemail of someone's on their phone that they never delete or a note that they sent or the last photo, but to have hours and hours of recordings of your conversations and then be able to nicely put it together and package it into this podcast is just so special. Thank you. Yeah. I don't think I realized that until we got into, you know, my producer, Stephanie Jens, who I just have to toot her horn because she really dove into this with me and made this a passion project for her. When we would sit and record my part of the podcast, I think in those moments I would stop and go, oh my gosh, this is so special. Like this is really unique. And for all the people that have listened and have had that same response, like, thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for emailing me and Facebooking and Instagramming me. I listen to everyone's responses to Molly's story. And I really feel like it's connecting people and giving people like really something to think about. Like, what do you want to do with the time that you have left? Maybe it isn't sex, right? Maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's spending more time with your family. Maybe it's traveling. Maybe it's writing a book you wanted to write, whatever it is, but really get clear with yourself about what you want to do with your time. And not just the time that you have left, but like the time that you have right now. Because if you think about it, I mean, we're we're all dying in some way, shape or form. Like we're all counting our days and our years down. Like you get to decide what you want to do with that time. And I just find her story to be really inspiring in that way. I think that's a really good point. And the other thing that stands out for me is, You didn't go into this saying, hey, let's monetize my best friend's death. Right. Like, this is a really incredible story. I think people would appreciate it. It is as raw and real and honest as it gets. And that's what people flock to. I mean, that's why people are listening, because there's so much honesty that is shared in this and there's no hiding. I mean, there were moments as I heard from you and felt from you that you were cringing. Like, how did she get into some of these things <laughs> and enjoy this stuff or let these guys do these things? But it was just what she did and she was cool with it. And I just thought that was really, really special. Um, along with being her best friend, it's really, really clear how much of a caregiving role that you played in her life. She had this complicated relationship with her mom and things were just sort of rocky on that side. So I'm curious what it was like for you to play that caregiving role and if it was a conversation you ever had or you just sort of stepped up to plate. Hmm. That's a bad idea. My God. Listen, you threading (laughs) the needle, stepping to the plate. We can say anything we want. Oh my God. I know. Proof that I am so not a sports fan. I was just going to say, I mean, my baseball terms are pretty limited here, but I think you're right. (laughs) Um, You know, it's interesting because when I look back at her life, her husband very much was her caretaker when she was dealing with cancer that first time, right? Like he was her rock. They were very good friends. There was a dynamic there that was intense and... I don't like to get into that too much, but I do want to acknowledge that he was a a very big part of her caretaking in her earlier years of having the cancer. And then when she was diagnosed as terminal, she navigated a lot of it on her own from her apartment, but asking for rides. Her husband at the time was still helping her a little bit. I was taking her to doctor's appointments. She was doing a lot of it alone. But when it came time for her to go into the hospital, and I think we started to all understand that this was not getting any better. I started to realize that I I knew I was her person. 
But I started to really realize that I was her healthcare proxy. I was the person that was going to navigate things with the doctor if she was unable to. And I felt very proud to be that um, in the beginning. I was very honored and I felt like I'm really good in a crisis. But then as things got hairier and messier and she really needed that care, thank God that is when she decided to allow her mom sort of back into her life. And her mom packed up her stuff from New York and basically lived by her bedside 24-7 for those last few months of her life. And I was so incredibly grateful for that because I could not have done it alone. It it became a job, like my full-time job. And I loved her immensely, but it was a delicate balance of having my own life and my own family and my own struggles, as well as still caring for her and wanting to be with her every day in the hospital. It was really layered. It was really a gift but it was hard and messy. And I know all the people that listen to your show understand that caregiving, it really sort of causes you to get to know yourself, the things you love about yourself and the things that you can't stand about yourself. And I learned a lot of those things very quickly when I drove to the hospital on a daily basis to be with her. I would bring her food. I would bring her books. I would bring her everything she wanted. And some days it was amazing. And some days nothing worked and nothing was good enough. And the food was disgusting and nothing that I did was right. And some days everything that I did was right. But you really learn to take yourself out of the equation and just be of service and also learn when you can say no and you have to take care of yourself, right? Because if your gas tank is empty, you're going to be useless to the person you're caring for. And Molly and I would have conversations like that. And those are difficult conversations to have. Like, hey, I know you're dying, but I need a break from you right now. Like, oh my gosh, saying that to her was so hard, but I knew I had to say it to honor the honesty of our relationship. So it was an interesting thing to navigate. It was difficult. I always acknowledge on the podcast the importance of just sort of acknowledging people's feelings and thoughts Mm -hmm. and not saying, I know how you feel because you don't know how anyone feels. And I repeat this over and over again, but it really is so important to be able to say, like, I can't imagine what you're going through and you both being in this tough position together. Right. How did you cope with it when you weren't at the hospital and physically with her? It's funny. I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't think I've ever said this out loud. I was angry at her a lot when I was at home and with my boyfriend and my kids and my other friends and driving to the hospital. I was frustrated, angry because I was feeling a lot of pressure and I was Molly's person. And I knew that I brought her a certain amount of joy that she couldn't get from other places. And I was so grateful to be that person but it was an immense amount of pressure. So I was angry a lot. But as soon as I walked into her room, every time I would take my jacket off and put my purse down on my little stool next to her bed, all of that melted away every single time. And I was really able to be present. So I thank the people that would listen to me complain. My mom, my friend Tara, my boyfriend, my friend Bill, like all my friends that would listen to me vent and complain and bitch about it basically. I thank them because they allowed me to get that out so that when I did show up to Molly, all of that was out of me and I had the space to really just be present with her. So it was very layered for me, but I don't think I've ever said that out loud that a lot of it was anger and frustration and how do I balance this and how do I balance that and why does she need so much from me? But 
a lot of it was my own stuff, like my own perfection. And I have to be this for her. She never told me I had to be anything. She just told me she enjoyed my company. That was my own problem with myself, my own boundaries that I couldn't set for myself. But when I got to her, every time I would just find myself being very present and loving. And so it was layered and messy, but it was okay. Thanks for saying that and for sharing it. I just want to give some love to the caretakers out there, the people that show up every day and maybe do things that don't feel easy or good. But if you need to complain and and vent about it, I say go for it without the guilt, right? Like just say it, say it, get it out. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. I've interviewed many caregivers on the show and they're all these like incredibly compassionate people and caring. And I'm like, I don't even understand how you function in life doing what you do because it takes so much work to be a caregiver. And to your point, to try to be perfect when there's no such thing in a situation like this and trying to find some forgiveness for yourself in a situation like this, because you can't give someone everything and they also don't know what they need. Often. I can say that personally with myself, with any of the challenges that I've dealt with, there have been many times where my friends are like, how can I help? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. Get me a new body. Like I, I don't really know what kind of advice to give you. There's no real manual on how to do that. Yeah. One of the things that I learned later in the show was that you were dealing with fertility challenges at the same time that Molly was going through this situation. And in episode seven, you were trying to find the words to explain how you didn't want to compare things and you didn't want to compare your fertility issues with her cancer. I'm really curious, what was that like for you? Did you ever want the attention to be on you? Did you want her to support you through what you were going through? What was that like? Well, you know, it's something we wanted to get into. We kept saying, oh, in season two, we'll get into sort of, she would call it my version of my cancer, which I don't take lightly. And to anyone that's struggling with cancer, I would never compare fertility to cancer. But for Molly, she could see the similarities because she was fighting to save her life. And I was fighting in a weird way to create life. and. For me, at the time, being a mother felt very much a part of my spiritual journey. And so Molly had an amazing way, even though she was dealing with so many issues and so so much treatment and back and forth to the doctor, she often made me feel the most seen and the most heard during that time because she got it on such a, 
an amazing level. And instead of going to that part of like being sort of angry or frustrated or resentful because, you know, hers was worse than mine in terms of like terminal diagnosis. Yes. But she never did that to me. She never made me feel like it was anything other than the most important thing going on in my life. And she was dealing with the most important thing going on in her life. And she found the similarities, which made me feel very comforted. There were many times where I was going through a miscarriage and having to have surgeries and sort of laid up in my bed bleeding. And she's laid up in her bed puking. And we're on the phone sort of going, well, at least we're in this together, right? Like, you're struggling, I'm struggling, and we are so in this together. And she never once, it was just such a beautiful quality about her. And I don't think I realized how amazing it was until retrospect, but like she really was able to be there for me emotionally. I don't know if anybody else was able to be there for me in that way because she was so in tune with what it's like to have your body literally working against you and saying no to something that's so important to you. So yeah, it was really hard. I went through six miscarriages and many IVF treatments and lots of surgeries all while she was going through her stuff. And in a very weird way, it connected us in a kind of spiritual weird connection that we had. And there was never once where it felt weird or uncomfortable, or I felt bad to like, sometimes I'd have a migraine and I'd be like, Oh, I have a headache. And she'd be like, Oh, you have a headache. That's so sad. (laughs) But she never did that with my fertility stuff. It was always honored. And, and just, she was just amazing about that. She's really good at that. Well, because I think part of it is just being really real and understanding that just because she's got the situation going on doesn't mean that you don't have anything going on. Yeah. Your life entirely stops. And especially when you actually had something serious in play, I think it's really fascinating. Is it okay for me to ask where you're at on that front? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I have two stepdaughters. They're 16 and 13. And after raising them from the ages of like, I think there were three and six when I started dating my boyfriend. Um, Now I am on the other side of it there will be no kids in my life. I am quite happy with the idea of no toddlers running around and nothing but fun travel in my future and having a great sort of life with my boyfriend. Um, I'm on the other side of it. So now I'm like, I'm that person who's like at a restaurant when the toddler's screaming and I'm like, well, dodged that bullet. (laughs) So yes, there were many years of grief and sadness. I mean, Mother's Day was, you know, it came up and I of course cried and I grieved that part of myself that wanted to be a mom. Like, you know, I always was so blown away by the love that happens between a mother and a child. And I still am. And I still wished I could have had it but I'm sort of not living in the space of not having it anymore. I'm living in the space of sort of what my life looks like without it and being okay with it. But it was a long road to get there. And I'm okay now. There are moments when I'm not okay, but it doesn't feel like, it doesn't still feel like the umbrella under which I'm sort of living my life. And I've I've gotten, I've gotten through it with lots of therapy and lots of just feeling the grief and going through it. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, and I think partly losing Molly caused me to snap out of it a little bit and go, okay, like there are certain things in your life you don't get to control. You can't fix. I can't fix that situation. It's just not possible. But what what can I change in my life to make it fuller? What can I do to make it feel loving? And I just been leaning into my family and 
you know, my friends, my friends are now my family. And, um, so that's kind of where I am. I mean, it's always a work in progress, but I'm in a much better place than I was, you know, years ago when the the sight of any newborn baby would just crumble me, you know, and I'd be on the floor crying. Now I'm, you know, I have those moments here and there, um, but they don't sort of rule my, rule my days like they used to. So I'm pretty happy being unattached and being able to sort of go, what, what do I want my life to look like? Well, and I also think that there's room now for you to redefine what it means to be a mom to your boyfriend's kids. Yes, that's a really good point. Like sometimes I look at them and I'm like, you guys are all I got, right? You guys are it. You're my source of family here. And a blended family is in and of itself extremely difficult, right? You've got two different sides of the coin going on and two moms in the picture, a stepmom and of course their mother. So we try to navigate that as beautifully as we can and on the same page. But, you know, it's hard. It's hard work to be a stepmom. But when I see that they really are sort of these kids that I got the honor to help raise and help shape and help inspire and support, like that's a gift. And I think for so long I was looking at, oh, I can't have my own biological child, but I'm a mom. Like I'm a stepmom. I'm a mom to my friends. I'm a mom to my dog. Like I'm a very maternal person. And just because I didn't get, you know, the honor of like birthing my own baby doesn't really make me any less of a mom. So yeah, it's kind of nice to get to that point in all of this. I agree. I think that's a really great way to look at it. Thanks. And thanks for asking me about that. I don't really talk about it that much. I'd like to in the future, but like I said, we were planning on going into season two and digging into that, but thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it really stood out to me when I was listening to that episode and you mentioned that and it sort of stopped me in my tracks of you had stuff going on too and how you guys navigated that together. So as you mentioned, your intention was to release a second season, obviously, but you have continued to release content on the Dying for Sex platform. What is that content and what's the plan with the Dying for Sex platform? Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah. So we did an episode. So after Molly's last episode, which is episode six, which I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I have to say it might be one of my favorite episodes of a podcast ever because she is so powerful and amazing in her sort of last words that she shares with us as listeners on Dying for Sex. It's one of my favorite things. I listen to it all the time just to remind myself just how amazing she is. And also like it inspires me. Um, and then episode seven was sort of a, like, like a looking back and kind of answering some questions. And then we decided that during this time of quarantine, people are, are really connecting with Molly and Molly's story. And in honor of her, we decided to do a few episodes called living for connection about what it's like to be trying to find connection during this pandemic. When everyone's quarantined, what are single people doing? How are they, dating? How are they dealing with their marriages? How are they finding community? And people are finding very unconventional ways, similarly to how Molly did, and sometimes not so similarly, but sometimes how Molly did. And we thought, what a great opportunity to just make more content um, in honor of Molly and also in honor of what's going on right now and just the human connection. So we've got three episodes one of them is already out, Living for Connection. It's under the Dying for Sex feed, so you can find them there. And then in terms of Molly's story, like I'm working on finding a publisher to get her book published because she did write a book in her hospice day. And I watched her every day write it. And I have that. And we're, we're working on trying to get that published. So I'll keep you posted about, about Molly's book. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That I want to read for sure. 
So what bit of advice would you give to our listeners who may be in that caregiver role that you played for a period of time for Molly? What advice would you give to them? That is such a good question. You know, I think I kind of came to it during my conversation with you is that, you know, I, I want to say take care of yourself and do things that are good for you and set boundaries and be, you know, be really careful with how much you give of yourself. But I think in my conversation with you, I just realized that sometimes sharing your struggle with the person that is sick can, it may feel counterintuitive, but I do remember one time Molly said to me, are you okay in all of this? This must be really hard for you. And I talked to her about it and it was so connecting to tell her that I was struggling due to a situation that was basically caused by her. And it's kind of the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, but it might be really healing to sit and have a conversation with the person that you're caring for and tell them how much you love them, but it might be hard for you and that it's okay for you to share. It's like in any relationship, like it's okay for you to share your feelings and your struggle with the other person and know that they don't have to take it on. They can just hear you and be present to your feelings. And in a way, it kind of connects you in a different way if you if you open up that way. Um, and it's something that I did with Molly a few times. And I kind of wished I would have done it more because I think she was capable of being the person in need but also oddly being there for me at the same time. And those were some of my favorite moments with her where we could just talk about what it was like to be two human beings in this really screwed up situation. And those were some of my favorite conversations with her. So for caretakers that have the ability to do that with the people that they love and that they're caring for, I say go for it. It might feel uncomfortable at first, but it's really a beautiful connection to have and a really nice conversation to have with the person that you're caring for, like a really human moment. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It makes total sense. And yet I've never heard anyone say anything like that before. So it's really powerful. Um, the word burden is what really comes to mind for me. And I wonder if by having that conversation, you're highlighting the fact that this is a bit of a burden for you. And if that's you know more than she needs to take on, or if she was welcoming of it because the conversation needed to be had. Well, I think what's interesting is that you almost remove the word burden once you have that conversation, because burden is that, you know, it, you carry that around with you. But I think once that, well, for me, and this may not be for everyone, like if it's not a situation where you feel like that's the kind of conversation you want to have, then I don't do it. If it doesn't feel natural and organic for you, don't do it. But for me, I felt by sharing that with Molly and saying, I'm having a hard time and this is really difficult because I love you so much and because I, I want to care for you so much. I feel like in a way it kind of lifted that burden off of her and off of me. And we could just sort of be two people together in that moment of just, this is hard for me. This is hard for you, but we are so in this together. And by sharing that, it almost kind of glues us together in that way of like, we're going to say the things that people don't say. And that was the thing about my friendship with Molly is that we loved to have the conversations that most people didn't like to have that made them uncomfortable. And I found that that connected us more. So maybe that advice isn't for everyone, but if you've got someone that you're caring for that you really have an intimate connection with, I think it's kind of an interesting place to go together. I love that so much. And I think in general, it makes me think of different friends that even if there aren't things going on, 
just being able to have those conversations and go there, even if it's scary, because it really does take the friendship to another level. Yeah. I mean, you talked about it with your journey, with keeping what you were going through so private for so long. Like there's a shame involved, right? There's always the shame involved with being vulnerable. And I do believe that when you start to share a little bit of that shame, like I'm embarrassed that I'm having a hard time with this. You know, I remember telling Molly one day, like, I want to be here all the time, but I can't. And I feel guilty for not being here. And then I feel angry when you want me here and I can't be here. And then I just feel overwhelmed. And she just started to cry and was like, oh my God, I totally get it. And she's like, I'm sorry if I'm bringing that on to you. Um, And then she looked at me and said, but that's just what happens. I'm dying. So get over it. Like we laughed about it. Like she was like, sorry, that's the way it goes. Like that this is just is what it is. And we kind of acknowledged like this was really hard for both of us. And I loved being able to just say that to her and it was really freeing. So once you get rid of some of that shame, it makes room for other stuff. Oh my God, that's so good. So last question here is, what's it like connecting with people and obviously lots of strangers who are listening to the podcast about Molly, who's no longer with us? And do you feel like it helps you cope with her passing? Hmm. Yes. I feel her around me all the time. And her dream was that her story would somehow have a ripple effect and affect other people and inspire other people and cause other people to think about things differently. And so every time I get an email or a text or an Instagram message that are sometimes like 12 paragraphs long, I get so excited because I know that it's rippling and that Molly is affecting people. I got a a message from a guy who was a trash truck driver. And he said he was listening to the podcast, somehow stumbled upon it. And then he hadn't talked to his mother in 10 years. They had had a big falling out. And he said, after he listened to episode six, he pulled over his trash truck and he picked up the phone and he called his mom. And I still, every time I think of him in his truck, he had a really long beard, super, you know, burly looking guy with like, big beard and in his trash truck sitting on the phone with his mom after listening to Molly, I thought that makes me feel like I get little pieces of her and that we are doing exactly what she wanted, which is to share her story and somehow help the world be a little bit of a better place by sharing her deepest, darkest stuff. And every response that I get makes me feel like I get to hold her a little closer. So I love it. And it's helped me grieve and it's helped me keep her alive. I wondered why I hadn't cried yet, but you got me. Oh. <laughs> really? I, I just feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but I just feel so strongly that it's such a special message and approach to take to this story. And I love how you pieced it all together. So for people who have now listened to this episode and are like, okay, I need to turn this off and go listen to Dying for Sex, how can they listen to Dying for Sex connect with you and follow what you're up to. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, because I would love to connect with your people, right? Like it's all about just getting Molly's story out there. And and I love like every time I talk about it, I get to tap into a new group of people that may need to hear it and may need to connect. So this this means so much to me. So thank you. And Molly thanks you too, because she's loving all this attention right now. Like this is her favorite. I know it. Um, But if you want to listen to Dying for Sex, you can always go to www.dyingforsexpodcast.com 
com, And then it'll take you to wherever, whether you have an Android or an iPhone. It is also at Wondery.com, but you can see it. I mean, you can basically listen to it on any platform that you listen to your podcasts. And then if you want to follow me, I'm always updating and letting people know what's going on with Dying for Sex. I'm at Nikki Boyer, N-I-K-K-I. B-O-Y-E-R. And I'll keep everybody updated on everything that's going on in Molly's world and in the dying for sex world. And then you can always reach out to me via Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And if you have something you want to share or how Molly's story has affected you, please let me know because I love hearing from you in a way it keeps Molly alive when you share your stories about how she's affected you. And Harper, just thank you so much for not only doing what you do, but opening up yourself and being so vulnerable about your story and creating content around your pain and your struggle, because that truly is the best thing to do with with the hard things that happen in life, right? You can bury your head in the sand or you can say, how do I help people? And I do really believe that what you're doing and how you're sharing is making such a big difference. And I'm, I'm just really grateful for you. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for doing this. It means the world to me. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.